It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance, ignorance and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exceptions, we fail to make the most basic human response and enter into their hearts and minds. We fail to ask, how would I feel if this was done to me? As a consequence, we fail to see that what we were doing degraded us all. Well, there they are, the most famous and often quoted words in Paul Keating's Redfern Address, delivered on the 10th of December, 1992. And 15 years later, in 2007, when ABC radio listeners had to rank the greatest speeches of all time, it came in third behind the I Have a Dream speech and the Sermon on the Mount. So you can see it holds a place in the Australian consciousness. It was a Prime Minister for the first time, admitting the wrongs that have been committed against Australia's Indigenous populations. And it's the focus of our Speakola episode today. It's spring here in Australia and summer is just around the corner and it is avocado season Although at Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocado, the aim is for every day to be avocado season. Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados put the most care into selecting the right land, growing the right types of fruit, picking them at the right time and caring for the fruit right through the distribution process so that you get that perfect avocado feeling every time. Check them out at greenskinavocados.com.au. And now let's get on with the episode. Paul Keating, Redfin and Don Watson. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you, that we as a people will get to the promised land. Hello everyone, it is Tony Wilson and we are out of lockdown after 111 days in Melbourne. The sun is shining, it is November and there are many reasons to be happy, including this great episode of the Speakola podcast, the Redfern Address, perhaps the most famous speech in Australian history, certainly right up there, delivered by Paul Keating, then Prime Minister of Australia. And he was chief architect of an attempt by the Australian government to deal with a High Court decision, the Mabo decision, which acknowledged that terra nullius was a legal fiction when it came to Australia, that this land was inhabited by the Indigenous people who lived here for thousands of years before white settlement in 1788. 
the court recognised that there was a form of title known as native title, which had been extinguished wherever it was inconsistent with white settlement. But in some cases, native title survived. And it was Paul Keating's job and mission to put a legislative framework around recognising native title in Australia. 1993 was to be the International Year of Indigenous People, and the event at Redfern was launching that year and the program, delivered in an inner-city suburb of Sydney that was a centre of the urban Aboriginal population. It's such a famous speech, such a political moment. If you're a Keating fan, it symbolised the courage of a leader willing to recognise a difficult past and to lay the first planks in healing a damaged relationship. If you're a Keating hater, it was a shot in the history wars rather than a practical attempt at Aboriginal reconciliation. Well, I'm unabashedly a Keating fan. There's no politician who has more speeches on Speakola, and I did ask him to come on the podcast. That would have been a true thrill. But I received a very polite email from his assistant declining the offer. In 2015, Keating said of Redfern, I decided to lay waste to the ambiguity and humbug that had forever compromised the topic. I wanted to deal in truths, historical truths, ones that made clear above all else that it was we who did the dispossessing and that it was we who had taken the lands and brutalised the traditional way of life. And I wanted, as Prime Minister, to lay out the truth unambiguously once and for all. For once a Prime Minister has spoken the truth, the truth can never become unsaid, no matter how jarring and objectionable these views were likely to be to conservative Australia. That's in a speech called Redfern Reprise, which is on Prime Minister Keating's website and also on Speakola. In the absence of a former Prime Minister, our guest for this episode to talk about the Redfern speech is the other name that he's raised in relation to it. It's Don Watson, Paul Keating's speechwriter from 1992 to 1996. Watson was a historian. He was a comedy writer for Max Gillies and the Gillies Report. But the job that made him truly famous was his role as Keating's speechwriter, especially after he published the remarkable Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, which told the story of a Prime Minister's office during the period in which Don Watson was employed. Paul Keating did launch that book, but he criticised Don Watson and his so-called black box recorder, and it caused a fallout in the relationship between Watson and Keating. There was a sentence on page 290 that upset Keating, and that related to how the draft of the speech came to be. Watson wrote, He read it with his breakfast and went to Redfern Park with every word intact, and I think knowing better than I did what it would mean to say them. Keating accused Watson publicly of breaking what the speechwriter Graham Freudenberg calls the contract, the idea that any speech written for a politician is owned by the politician, belongs to the politician, and that we don't need the story of how the speech came to be. Don Watson speaks extensively to this accusation in the episode, and he wrote a beautiful, pensive afterward to the 10-year edition of Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, and that concluded, If he feels betrayed, I have to concede the possibility that I betrayed him. In that case, I can only hope that one day he will realise that the betrayal had nothing to do with spite or neglect of his feelings, but with reasons concerning the business of writing that are no less compelling to a writer 
than reasons arising from politics are to a politician. It comes down to the fact that everyone who sets out to write history must be free to decide how he will do it. I regret only a few things more deeply than Paul Keating's belief that he was betrayed by this book. But if I had written it according to his lights rather than mine, from any angle other than mine, I would have betrayed myself, and for want of a more clinical term, history. The bit I saw, at least, would have been betrayed as well. So that's the background. And now here's the interview. I met Don Watson in a park in Melbourne during lockdown. It was an amazing chat, interrupted by my recorder running out of batteries. And it's not often that Australia's most famous speechwriter runs home for you to get some new batteries. Thank you, Don. And then we had an angry Donald Trump supporter with flags in his front yard screaming over the fence about the effing communists. And it was all quite action-packed. Here it is. Well, this is a big day for me because when I started the Speakola podcast, I decided to ask Don Watson onto it. In fact, he was the first person I asked to come onto the podcast. And now, 20-odd weeks later, it's happening. It's a very Melbourne sort of interview, very Melbourne 2020. We're on a park bench. We've got masks around our chins. We're more than a metre and a half away. And Don, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tony. Pleasure. Now, you're going to give us, hopefully, a speech writer's perspective. You worked as a speech writer, most famously for Paul Keating, but you actually started, I think, with uh, the Victorian Premier, John Kane. With John Kane, yeah. In, in, in 1986, I put together an interesting quinella of writing for John Kane and Max Gillies at the same time. And uh, it, it worked well. So how did that happen? Were you, how did you become a John Kane's choice? I don't know whether I was John's choice, but Terry Moran, who I knew at, who was at La Trobe in its first year, like me, was running John's office. And I don't know where he got the idea that I'd be a useful speechwriter, but he did, and um, that's what happened. I, uh, I used the two together. I was sort of freelancing, so I was never more than, you know, I was only going to and from John's office, but um, I was never permanent in the place. But... Um, it was interesting. I mean, it, it, the the rhythms are the same. You know, to 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 the satirical side of things, you need to sort of pick up the the inflections, the cadences of Polly's language. You know, and and I don't know whether that helped in the speech writing, but you have to play it in your head. I think speeches, you have to sort of hear them before you write them almost. And I think doing the satire was. Was probably helpful, but I'd always listen to people. You know, I'd, I'd listened to Parliament when I was a kid. I don't know why, but I misspent youth, I suppose. But I used to like the sound of the different voices, and I think I had that in common with Max. You know that he he was much the same. And and there were some interesting voices around then. They were more interesting. You know, Hawkey. There was never anyone like Hawk for. Hawk for talk. I mean, he was he was such a fascinating character. People always say, oh, there were more witty pollies around in those days, and they're certainly, I don't know whether they were great wits, but they're better than the present lot. But, you know, you could hear the sounds of sheep shearers and uh, 
on one side and lawyers on the other and private schools and country bumpkin schools like I came from and so on. And there were, For me, there was sort of endless interest in it. Was there a favourite? Did you have a, a hero politician or a hero speaker at least in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Well, I loved hearing Goff and I, I vaguely remember you know, Doc Everett's nasal twang and of course I remember Menzies with that sort of um, that sort of patrician Olympian um, intonation, but it, you know, life was more interesting when the when when the political war was uh, more class based because you know the Liberal Party and the, if you'd been to a private school, you would you were known by your accent. You know, and it's now private school girls and boys speak the same way as the proletarians. But I remember teaching, I taught at Footscray Institute for a while and, and I, I remember a, a young girl student said to me once that she'd gone in, she'd found herself in South Yarra once and she went in to buy a sandwich. And when she heard the people speaking, she said, she said I, couldn't, I couldn't ask for anything because my voice was so different to theirs and I just drove away. <laughs> Australia used to be much more like that, you know. They, you know. The girls did elocution and the men rounded their vowels in a way that put them above the the uh, characters up the back shouting abuse so that the the, the difference in the way people uh, spoke interested me and the and the wit was different as well that's all changed now we're much more sort of mid-pacific i think and uh, the, the language is nowhere near as colorful as it used to be even the swearing has sort of fallen away to two or three words but this is a this is me being old. If I occasionally I go to the Urban Dictionary, I find that the language is actually abounding in new constructions and alive and well, as long as you're not working in the public service or a corporation. You know. It's the language which interests me, really, as much as the sort of tribal um, affiliations I have. With Kane, was there a speech that stood out for you? Was there one that maybe even made you a, a recognisable speechwriter? That, that a Prime Minister might want to employ? I don't know. Um, the first one I wrote was an unusually long one. It was a lecture um, on education. And I was then living up in the country. I was writer-in-residence at Gippsland Institute. And I remember... I, I didn't go to... I very rarely went to any speech that I wrote. But I, I was living in this tiny little flat in a town called Ballara. And the phone rang, it was John afterwards, and he, he actually rang up and said how much he liked the speech, so this was a great relief. But what was interesting about that speech is when I started, I for the first couple of days sort of working on it, I got this brief from the public service, from the department, and I couldn't, I thought I'm not up to this job because I couldn't understand what they were talking about. <laughs> I honestly didn't know. And I rang the department and said, look, I'm sorry, but what does all this stuff mean? I, I, and without it, well, there's, there's probably a bit of hyperbole here, but basically they said, well, we don't know either, but this is the stuff we use. <laughs> and it was full of, you know, the catchphrase, you know, access and equity and all this. It was just it was just so dead. That's when I first got this feeling that, you know, the language was sort of dying in the, in the public service and beyond that too. It, it wasn't sort of legal language and it wasn't, you know, classic... Uh, sort of yes prime minister language it was a kind of new managerial style that had been picked up from the private sector and 
the language of total quality management and all this sort of stuff, added to bureaucraties, plus, you know, sloganeering in politics. So it all came together into this sort of terrible soup. I think part of the, the whole my, my life as a speechwriter was sort of trying to say, well, the public deserve something fresher, you know, so at every point you're trying to just bring it to life a bit, put something in there that's going to engage an audience and make them laugh perhaps or make them think anew or something, you know, that was the main project. And that never changed from that first speech in to the last one with Paul. Well, you said with Keating that Keating always wished he had studied Marx and Weber um, and that he had a, a sense that being immersed in those ideas would have been invigorating for him. But you said that, in fact, he was spared university, that, that, that that's part of what made him a great political orator. I think in some ways that's true, yeah. I mean, I've... I've, I've Look, Paul's got a, a, a unique and brilliant mind, no question. And God knows what he would have done with it had he read Marx and Weber and all the others we laboured through, made what sense we could of it. But you know, I don't think Paul goes around wishing that he'd read Marx and Weber. But I, th- but I think he was spared a lot of the fashionable language that people who went through universities in the 70s and 80s got or the 60s and his language naturally was always fresh and lively and rich in metaphor and um and in verbs and he had a you know he had an instinct for in a sense what was required you know so that was certainly the i think the advantage of his um not having had a university education. There's a beautiful phrase, I think, in the in the addendum to the 10-year anniversary edition of Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, where you say, what made Keating rare in politics then and would make him a genuine freak now was his ear. And I don't mean for music, but for language. He lived in the language, not as a pedant does, but in, visceral, in a visceral, intuitive way. Language and music kept alive in him the essential understanding now lost in leaders that as well as economics and politics and management and polling, there is a poetic key to human reality. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's true. And I think it's terribly sad that there's no one like that around anymore. And maybe there never will be. It's, um, it's a unique gift of Paul's. And that's why he, you know, he responded to words. He, he liked to manufacture words, you know, as he said, their words are bullets. And he th- he'd think them up in the morning and he'd come in and you never knew where he was going to fire them often. But he had this sense of, well, there's the, you know, there's, there's the theory, hard to argue with it seems to me, that, that the parliament is really the civil war continued by peaceful means. So the, the idea of words as bullets is a, is, a, is a metaphor with great power and truth about it. And I think Paul took that notion of the parliament as the civil war continued almost literally into the parliament every day he went and into, in, into the political contest. And the fact that he, that he put such, such store by words was uncommon in the era in which 
he was practicing politics you know it became less and less common because the language became more and more deadened by the new political style governed largely by geniuses in political offices um, political advisors of all shapes and ages not all of whom were as smart as they thought they were and who reduced politics to sloganeering and wedging and smart-ass tactics and all sorts of stuff and it lost its spontaneity and it's uh, the, the the real point of politics i think was lost except the point of winning i guess and that plus the managerial language which came through the public service and be, just became the public language really so paul became rarer and rarer in that field as a as a person who spoke directly and and in the colloquial form that he'd inherited from his youth. He had words and phrases I'd never heard of before. It was very interesting. Coming from a rural Protestant background and a conservative background and meeting someone who came from a Labour Catholic working class background, that there was such a difference, you know. We were sort of I wouldn't say worlds apart, but it, it was always interesting listening to him because he had he had certain words and phrases and, and metaphors which were entirely new and you never knew quite where they were coming from. Does any one stick with you? Or do you remember examples? Well, I remember, you know, words like... I'd, I'd never heard the word tyke for a Catholic, but that was standard Sydney. There were other words which I won't repeat on this on this <laughs> broadcast. He could say some savage things. He'd draw them from everywhere, but they're not, they're not coming to my mind, mind as I speak. And he could run them together. I'm thinking of his one we put up on Speakola is his extraordinary attack on Howard and Hewson when I think they said that the 50s was a golden age and, and then he gave the cultural cringe speech which is the this was the golden age when Australia stagnated and, and that to me is a prime example not really full of abuse but just so words as bullets it is bang 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 yeah, yeah. Bang, yeah, bang the industrial archaeology as he used to call it um, of the 50s yeah that, that was that was good the one about the um the museum and the and the dioramas in the museum and <laughs> yeah he loved all that he, he had a kind of cartoon humor you know he he liked he loved those sort of word pictures they made him laugh enormously he loved um i always remember a story he told me it was before my time but when john howard had his teeth done the liberal party got his teeth fixed and they they looked quite different and paul was in the house slinging off at him across the aisle and um he was. The speaker told him that he had to withdraw that remark and apologise. And Paul said, "I said to the speaker, Mr. Speaker, I, I withdraw and I'll apologise, but only if the member for Benelong says Saffron Succotash." So you knew what he'd been. We'd been watching the Bugs Bunny. <laughs> So he had this ability and a famous ability in response and as a parliamentary performer and on his feet. But obviously, I don't remember him being a great set-piece speechmaker in these times as treasurer. Um, but certainly once this partnership began, I think things improved um, a lot. Do you think that's why he sought you out? He wanted the kind of the more of the 
I guess the beautiful speech. No, he didn't speak. He didn't drum. He didn't seek me out. He, he. I think I was imposed upon him rather than being sought out. Mark Ryan recruited me. He'd been in Kane's office, and um, he'd gone to work for Paul when Paul was trying to get the numbers to roll hockey. And so it was Mark's move. Paul and I got on a right when we met, and um, and that was the story. I don't think he was looking for... He, he was never really comfortable with reading speeches. I don't think... I think it's fair to say he didn't read them especially well. But he... Um, I think it's very much in his favour that he felt uncomfortable with the text before him because it, if it was... It got between him and the audience and he felt that he didn't sound... He didn't sound convincing. And he would much prefer um, ad-libbing, doing it out of his head. But the nature of a Prime Minister's life these days is that you can't do it all yourself. You need a speechwriter. You need two or three some of the time. So, you know, I was, as I said, I mean, I was, I, I, I was imposed on him. For the most part, it worked pretty well. I mean, th- th- this is perhaps the time to make the point that um, despite things that have been said, I hold to the view that all speechwriters hold to, and that is that the speech once delivered by the by the politician belongs to the politician. And the simplest way to understand it is that a, a, a speechwriter is really a, an advisor who writes his advice formally and in the shape of a speech. And then it's up to the politician, as it is with any other advice he gets within the office, to decide which he uses and which he discards. So... So you can't blame the recession on Don Russell. For the same reason, you can't blame a bad speech on me. <laughs> he takes the good with the bad. He's um, the man in the arena, as uh, well, exactly. Teddy Roosevelt said. And it is it's his choice what, you know, he can throw out. If you're, an, if you're a speechwriter or you're an advisor, you feel pleased if you give him the right advice and it works well. You know, if it's the right speech to give, then that's, that's where your satisfaction lies. And so this is what Graham Freudenberg called the contract, that the politician owns well, the I mean, speech it, and it is the politician's speech. Sure, although I must say that wasn't particularly... Uh, Paul quoting Graham against me was not really the most honest thing he ever did because Graham and I agreed entirely on what the contract was and no one was ever any doubt of it. You know. But the trouble is, everyone knew that Graham wrote Whitlam's speeches and Hawkey's speeches. They were famously Freudenberg's Freudenberg wrote those speeches. I remember the first time I became conscious of a speechwriter was a big article in the National Times on Graham writing the uh, Blacktown Address um, in 1972, the famous Whitlam blueprint for the future. And uh, it was about how Graham went up to um, Medlow Bath, up you know near Katoomba, and isolated in a hotel and wrote this marvellous speech. Even then, I think I knew that Ted Sorensen had written Kennedy's speeches and so on. I mean, there was no... And it didn't mean that it wasn't Whitlam's speech, and it didn't mean that the Hawke speeches weren't Hawke speeches because they were written by Freudenberg or Gary Hutchinson or a whole lot of other speechwriters. So that's not the problem. The problem becomes when you're writing history. And do you then pretend that you didn't write a speech? Do you say, well, it just sort of dropped from the sky? So the, the problem I got into was when I wrote the book, 
I had at some point to sort of describe certain speeches and the writing of them. Otherwise, it just felt so ridiculously faux-magisterial, you know, as if I was just kind of fly on the wall. Well, I wasn't. I was actually on the floor. And then it ended up when I got basically... <laughs> Years later, I get rung by a bloke from the Sydney Morning Herald. I'd never heard of him. And he asked me, oh, he says, the, um, you must be very pleased the Redfern speech has been put in, I don't know, the National Archive. I don't know what it was. It got, it got, third, it got voted the third greatest speech in Australian history. Oh, this was something more formal. Anyway, actually, I'd just driven about three hours from Nagambi to Warrigal because my mother was just going into hospital. And I got, he rang up and he said... I don't know how the conversation went, but I do know I began by saying, you know, you should be ringing Paul. It's his speech, you got to understand. No, no, but you wrote it, didn't you? And I think I said something to the effect that, well, I was his speechwriter, so what do you think? And, of course, then he wrote the article, and then Paul went ballistic. And But there was much more to Paul's irritation by that point. I mean, he was, he was very irritated by the book, and um, for other reasons than my seeming to claim that I wrote a speech. And this is, and I guess the particular speech that gets raised in this is the Redfern speech. And there's a one line in Pleading Heart that says that you handed him a draft and that it was read pretty much word for word as in the draft. Um, is that the one that's irked him? Is that the... Uh, it's one of them. You know, I think, I think there's a lot, you know, I think I said somewhere else, you know, that it, in a way, the business of who wrote the speeches is a surrogate for other grievances. You know, I think it's genuine. I, I knew he was sort of sensitive about it. I remember once listening, uh, uh, driving and hearing Marcia Langton talk about the speech on the radio and saying something about, you know, the, that Paul had an historian and this made such a difference to everything and, and I was thinking, no, he won't be liking this, you know. But it's a point worth making, you know, about that speech. Basically, the Redfern speech is Australian history 1A. It's what I used to teach. You know, there was nothing new in it. <laughs> it all struck me as sort of so obvious. It was really like, you know, a lecture in Australian history. So it didn't need anybody else's input. It didn't need to be talked about. Unless, what I, what I, what I so admired Paul for doing later, at the time, I didn't, you know, I didn't think much about it, was that he was that he delivered it without you see had the speech been given to virtually any other labor leader of whenever they would have said hang on we can't say we did this if i presented it to anybody in the office they would have buggerized around and say, oh this is dangerous you can't say that you can't do that all oh, you know it would have been badlerized the thing about paul was that he he knew he understood the dangers of compromise he often used to say you know most politicians will legislate their way around a problem. When they get to the other side, they can't remember what it was for, and the thing no longer looks like what you started with. So you could say we and then qualify it and say, well, our forefathers, or or you could then say, oh, well, geez, it wasn't really our forefathers, it was, you know, some people. And by the end, you've, you've got no power left. The speech has lost all its force. So the point of saying this is Paul's speech, is really that. He's saying, I put this up, and he 
takes it. And as I said, I mean, it really was a History 1A first-year lecture. That's what it was. And he says, we're not going to change change it. I'm going to do the whole thing and this, because this is, the, this is what it... We've got to make the point very powerfully. And that's really where the contract lies. In The contract is, I pay you to advise me and I'll use what advice I choose. For me, that is... Or for the for the person giving the advice is well I've done my job well if he uses all of it or some of it and it works but it's his and I've never questioned that at all but if you take you know some people do it and you know some people have more trouble than others with it uh, you know Kennedy had a little bit of trouble with Sorensen you know Sorensen asked whether he wrote Kennedy's inaugural he said which has the famous line asked not what your country can do for you what you can do. I never thought it was such a good line, actually, but anyway. <laughs> but Sorensen asked, you know, you wrote it, didn't you, Ted? And he said, ask not. That's how I should have replied all the time. <laughs> but I never wrote that line, you know, ask yeah. not. And, you know, or Julia Gillard, Michael Cooney wrote a book about writing speeches for Julia, and there's no one, Julia didn't mind. She wrote a forward for it, saying, well, how nice it was to go and see him. So some have a problem with it and some don't. I think, you know, Goff never had a problem with Freudenberg. As long as Goff could say, you know, I don't care how many prima donnas I have, so long as I'm prima donna absolute, that's... Well, Paul had... Uh, Paul felt about it differently. And um, I'm sorry he did. And there is also the sense, I mean, you're living in the office, you're experiencing a lot of Paul, um, you're finding his voice probably in the same way as you had to try to find Max Gillies' voice years before. And so no wonder he's happy with the words. I mean, you, you're thinking it as Paul, aren't you, more than you're thinking as Don? Well, you do. You're trying to, you know, you imagine it in his voice. And I suppose there's a point at which you're sort of hearing it in your head as a as an argument. But, you know, I don't know how other speeches writers worked. I've never really talked to them, but I mean, I I did an awful lot of walking, you know, and I still do for any writing. I think, you know, walking and writing go together in a sort of dangerous combination. Spent a lot of time in the shower before you had to pay for your water. Um, that, And it is, like I say, it is your ear. So I don't know whether I actually imagine Paul's voice as much as you would say a hawk who had such a distinctive voice you could, you could work out what Hawkey was going to say just by pulling your own ear <laughs> it had activated the brain, brain in some way whereas Paul's voice was not quite it was distinctive but it wasn't so he, he actually says in an interview with Kerry O'Brien at the at an ideas festival at the Sydney Opera House he said um, he said I had a my weak my voice is weak and soft he doesn't like his own voice in, in a in a because he's, I mean, his hero is Churchill, yeah. and he, he obviously wishes he had something more. He said, it's amazing what I could have done if I was Barry Jones, I think he says in the same <laughs> lecture. <laughs> yeah, Barry had a sort of booming voice, or he still has in his own way. No, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's true, he didn't, have a, he didn't have a powerful speaking voice. And, but, you know, he, he could, the strength of Paul always was this, you know, was, was the combination of ideas and language, you know, and... and you know, he would have been terrifying if he'd had a Churchill, Churchillian voice. Thank God he didn't try and imitate him. <laughs> you know, Goff, Goff rang up one day and said, um, 
uh, he said, uh, will you tell your prime minister, in fact, tell them all if you can, <laughs> if you haven't got Latin, don't use Latin. <laughs> don't use it. <laughs> must, have, must have been fun working in there. It was fun sometimes. It was, it was kind of distressing at other times, but it was, it was certainly... A, it, it registers you so violently in my mind that you might like to... Th- you know, I, f- I find it a little bit irritating after all these years. You know, I spent four years as Paul's Prime Minister... As Paul's, Paul's Prime Minister... As Paul's speechwriter. And I'm... That's basically the way I'm, I remain known as Paul's speechwriter, you know. But it is... It, imp- it, it imprints so firmly in your head nothing else comes close and if Paul used to say you know there's nothing there's nothing like it is it public life there is nothing like it It, it, you'll never get anything like public life doing things and that's true it's just a kind of incredible when it's good or bad it's just it's well I suppose it's you know it's it's like warfare without uh, the bullets you know and it's a it's a hell of an excitement. If you're wanting to if you want to do things, what's extraordinary about a political office? Well, this isn't about speech writing, is it? I, I found it amazing that there were so many people around politics who seemed to get whose main ambition seemed to be to do as little as possible, to stay safe, to cover their asses before anything else. I always thought that was actually almost like a different species of humanity, you know, that for most of us the first thing is we feed, you know, we fight and we eat and then we cover our ass. You know, the thing about the political mind for at least half of the political classes is the first thing you do when you're born is you cover your ass, make sure that you can't be got at. And, uh, you know, so you, you wait to see where the power is in the room and you wait to see before you speak. You wait to see whether you know what's going to be right because you don't want to be wrong. Because if you're wrong, you'll lose credibility for the next six months, maybe forever. It may ruin your career. You may not get a promotion. The last thing you want to do is have an idea that might be the wrong idea. It might get rejected. So it, it's what keeps politics, you know, reduced to a kind of thin gruel, rather than. And again, it's like saying. The moment you compromise, you've got to really think hard about what you're compromising, whether you've got anything left. And what was great about Paul was that he was smart and he could be careful. You know, it wasn't as if he was a sort of political, you know, lunatic. Go for, go for everything. But when there was a, when something needed to be done, when there was a strong idea, then you didn't ever compromise on it. You, you went straight through if you needed to. So he understood those things, both in language and in real politic. My favourite chapter of Bleeding Heart is the opening when you're talking about the first meeting with him. And and that's when you're also talking about his famous speech from 1990, before your time. It's called the Placido Domingo speech. Can you tell us a bit about that speech? That's when Paul, I think he lost a dear friend that day. And Chris Higgins, he was Secretary of the Treasury. Yeah, yeah, died, yeah died young of a heart attack that day um, so it was given in an atmosphere of gloom if you like it was off the record uh, there is a transcript which I once saw but I don't know where it is now 
but it was it became notorious if you like because in it Paul um, made I suppose thinly veiled um, references to the lack of leadership that Bob Hawke was then giving he said that by contrast with us we'd always had plodders I think the word was plodder to lead us whereas the United States had had you know Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and Roosevelt and at times of crisis to lead them through now it was taken to mean that Paul was bidding for the leadership and of course Hawkey was only you know half a mile away up at the lodge when this was going on anyway it was it was a sort of defining speech I think um, beyond that I don't know much I can't recall what much else that was in it except that he sort of you know th- there was a sort of atmosphere of of with you the media we are in the process of transforming this country and you know you'll get value from me hence the Placido Domingo I always give value um, that was the, even on a bad night Placido's pretty good yeah that's right whereas you know Carreras and Pavarotti might you know Miss notes occasionally. Placido never misses. <laughs> um, that's may not, may not be accurately paraphrasing it, but that was really the point of it. He does good humour with his boasting, doesn't he? He still does that. I, I mentioned that Sydney that Sydney interview with Kerry O'Brien at the Opera House, and he has people in stitches as he says how good he is. Yeah, yeah. yes, it's, it's it's a quality he shared with um, with Whitlam, really. That that sort of artful boasting that gets people laughing. It has immense charm, you know, just absolutely. And did he have that in the first meeting with you? Yeah, very much. He was very quiet and um, there was there was sort of melancholy in the room. Um, that's what struck me about him. He's always said that, you know, I was the melancholic and some wiseacres have said, you know, I projected my melancholy onto him in the book, to which I would say, I actually don't like Marla much. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone who does <laughs> and, and you know which is sort of essence of melancholy um, I, I'm nothing to be ashamed of melancholy I, I did hear him say to, to um, Kerry in one of those interviews you know, you've got to have a bit of melancholy mate um, I'm glad he recognises that because without it you know life's empty but you know I, I, th- I think that when he got the leadership he I think the first quote in that book is a a quote of Wellington's, you know, when he says, you know, there's nothing so, is it Wellington? There's nothing, the only thing that is more melancholy than a battle lost is a battle won. That's when it really hits you. And I think, you know, he deposed Hawke, but it didn't feel right. Naturally, it didn't. You know, the natural order had been upset. You don't want to kill the father, you know. It's all, all those things are at work in a way. And there are victims, including the man you worked with for 10 years or more. So I think there was that sort of feeling around of... You talked about him looking at the desk and yeah. half expecting Hawke to still be sitting there sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. and um, as you said, you could still smell his cigars. So, you know, and I, I think that was that's the reaction of a real human being to... You know, he's not cavorting around saying, we won, we won. He's saying, well, this is the... It comes with a price, you know. Um, 
That's a helicopter looking for people without masks. <laughs> <laughs> they can see, you know. Yeah. In June 1992, he gets presented with a huge opportunity, I guess, because the Mabe decision is handed down. It's an area that he's identified for a long time as one of national shame. Was was there immediately a sense that Paul was onto this, that he was going to mark his prime ministership now with action on this? Not as I recall, um, but you can never, you know, you couldn't always tell. He, it wasn't as if he came rushing into the office and saying, now here's a great opportunity. I think it took a while to work out what was going on, but I wouldn't presume to know what was on in his mind at the time. I think for an awful lot of people, including his immediate predecessor, it would have not been so much an opportunity as a bloody nuisance. Not a vote winner, one that wasn't going to make it uh, any easier for us. In fact, you know, every day of Mabo of the native title negotiations cost us votes. I'm sure of that. Not only because not everybody thought native title was a good idea, but because it absorbed so much time that might have been spent on more on on matters that were more pressing on the great majority, you know. And uh, the native title legislation uh, owes everything to Keating's determination to see it through that it that. that the High Court had presented us with this situation. There was a native title, and it was necessary to legislate it. I think most, pretty well any politician on both sides of politics would have shelved it, pushed it aside, found some way to ignore it. Um, and he was copying it on both sides, wasn't he? So there's a sense now that he he kind of did something for Indigenous Australia, but at the time, Indigenous Australia weren't that happy with him either. Is that is that your memory of it? Uh, not entirely. I don't know, but I don't know what indig- Indigenous Australia was thinking at the time. But it was. A, I know that senior members of cabinet thought he was mad to pursue it, and thought that he, you would never get agreement between the miners and the farmers and the Aboriginal community. That it was just it, it was a it was a fruitless pursuit, and. And I'd get told that, at, you know, in airport lounges and things, that, you know, why is he doing this? And that it was, you know, distracting the government from uh, following up on matters that might win us votes. But he was never going to let it go. And so it was, you know, in, in the end it was... Got through because he persisted, and those same cabinet ministers, you know, cheered as loudly as anybody when it finally passed the Senate after its great um, sitting. So it was, I, I think it, it had it had a. Um, I think it was one of those things that had the effect of galvanising the Labor Party in a way, you know, as good works do. Although it drove some out, like that member for Kalgoorlie who, you know, reckoned it. Was a disaster, and but you know, I I, th- I think it was a sort of evidence of you know, if the Labor Party doesn't do things, it it may as well not exist, you know, and that was basically Keating's position, and you presented with a, as you say, an opportunity. Now we'd say a challenge. 
presented with this sort of reality, he um, he did what was necessary. And in the course of doing it, I mean, he, I think, he created a, a generation of Aboriginal leaders who, you know, are now f- fading out, I guess, but were terrifically important. And on the 10th of December, I mean, it gets married, I think, with the achievement of the legislation is this speech that stands, I think I mentioned that an ABC poll put it at number three in Australian history or something like that. But at the time, the event at Redfern wasn't earmarked by the government as huge. It was it was part of a busy schedule. You had another speech to write for that day, I believe. Well, there was always another speech to write, but it, but it was... It was... Um, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. The speech was... Fundamentally, it was History 1A, Australian History 1A. It was like a lecture I'd probably given a dozen times when I was an academic. And I... Stupidly, I didn't... I honestly didn't see the significance of confessing to these crimes. But they'd been written about extensively. I'd written about them myself in a book about the Gippsland frontier. Henry Reynolds had written about them at great length. Um, Henry Lewes, Michael Christie, a whole lot of people had written about what happened on the frontier. And that just went into the, the speech. I didn't go and listen to it. I very rarely did anyway, but I didn't go that day. If I'd thought it was going to be a a big number, I might have gone, but I didn't think it would be. But it had a it had an, an uncommonly big effect on people's minds. I don't know whether it changed anything. I mean, I, I must say that I now think, well, what in the end did that speech achieve? I don't know that it did achieve anything, really. I don't know. I'm, don't know. Words are words. <laughs> you know, sometimes I you know I have a it was Marbo was you know, emasculated a bit. We've had an intervention, we've had we've still got appalling rates of incarceration. I mean all the whole calamity continues in many ways. And I don't think our attitudes to Aboriginal Australia have changed so profoundly. It probably didn't do as much as half as much as Cathy Freeman winning in 2000 did. So I don't know. I, I, I don't quite understand why it is seen as such a a profound speech. What is profound about it, I, I think, is that Keating didn't back off in a, uh, on anything, including, you know, using the word we so that we take responsibility. To have compromised on that would have been would have made it, you know, an entirely nondescript speech, I think. It's interesting watching the video of the speech, and you mentioned this in Recollections as well, but there's quite a lot of noise. It's outside. If it was going to be sort of a glamour set piece, this is Australian history in the making, you imagine that the acoustics would have been worked out a little bit more in advance. It's windy. You can hear even heckling, I reckon. Yeah, you can hear heckling. Well, I used to get heckled in the office because I'd be working back there late at night and... and these characters from Redfern would ring up and usually with a, a few sails to the wind and you know, I want to speak to Keating, where is he? You know, and you get all this sort of stuff. And so I wondered when I heard the speech replayed if 
they might have been some of the people who used to ring up the office late at night. But it was interesting, you know, if you listen to that, when he says, the, it, the heckling stops the moment he says, we did this, we did this, we did that, and then it all goes very quiet. That's the, that's the, the bit that really mattered. If you'd asked me, you know, on the day, has any Prime Minister ever taken responsibility for what happened on the frontier, I, I, I wouldn't have confidently said no. I'm, I'm, I wasn't sure that maybe, you know, when Goff did the thing at, at Waddy Creek that he didn't say something like that. I, I don't know, but anyway, it, um, it, is a, it is an amazing moment. Anyone watching the speech, yet the noise does stop. Um, the speech starts. We mentioned the occasion, launch of the year of the Indigenous person. Then you get into a kind of a statement of the purpose of the speech, which is that Australia can't be successful unless it deals with this issue. There's a bit, just as an act of writing, it's a bit where you're talking, it's a test of our self-knowledge of how, and then you go, of how well we know the land, how well we know our history, how well we recognise, how well... I'm interested in, people talk about the rule of threes. Do you find that four often sits better or that there's a or is it just a music you just listen in the moment and it works or it doesn't is there is there almost a tip you can offer on that i was never conscious of it if there was threes are interesting aren't they you know like uh, we always used to send up hawkey by saying you know he'd always say there are three three points here michelle three and he'd start getting he'd get to about seven (laughs) (laughs) uh, three uh, three uh, things here um I, I don't know. I wasn't conscious of doing threes, but repetition is, you know, pretty standard rhetorical device. <laughs> There's a more um, technical term for it, I think. But, but um, no, I'm, uh, I actually, I truly, I never knew about any of those techniques in speech writing. The thing I always thought was necessary was that you needed to say something that actually interested the, aud- the immediate audience, even if you were casting a much wider net. If the immediate audience, if you weren't talking to them you weren't going to be talking to anybody else. Which might be why you do the next bit, or Paul does the next bit, which is Redfern, to locate it, to engage with the people of Redfern and say, you're our audience, here we are. Yeah, well, I don't know whether I did that... It, it's, it's done consciously in the speech or not, but it, it, is, it always strikes me as essential. If you watch, for instance, these debates when Joe Biden... I mean, I find it hard to say Trump ever did anything right but he was quite right to call out Biden the other day when he's having a conversation with Trump and, a, and, a, and an interviewer in the debate and then he looks down the camera and talks to the American people and Trump said oh come on Joe stop being a politician and I thought he's dead right you know, yeah. that, that is a political stunt and um, it looks so clumsy and would win nobody I don't think so it's much more important that, that you, you can't talk, talk to the people beyond unless you're talking to the people immediately in front of you even if your message is to cast beyond. I mean, every speech should in some ways have some elements of a conversation about it, I think. It's couched in, I guess, national terms to begin with, that this is a national embarrassment and a national issue, an international embarrassment, and we cannot simply sweep injustice aside. And in Recollections you say, it's just in time that the wee bit starts. And it's this sentence that turns it, it begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Just a—that's hmm. the bit, isn't it? That, that um, 
that signals the most quoted and the oh, I think it's quite an intensely moving line and and it echo and, and it enters into you know the famous part of the speech yeah well um that was you know uh, yeah I don't know what to say it, it's um these things in a way I've always thought that writing actually in some ways when you write you're tr- you're, you're discovering what's already there that it's it's not actually an act of invention so much as an act of discovery. So there is, this sounds a bit mystical, but there is hidden, and it, it's it's why the concept of the muse evolves. The muse is, is is there when the muse is with you, it almost writes itself. It's like it's, it's like the muse has pointed out what there is to write about. And I think in speeches that work, you discover not only the ideas but and the ideas often come out of the words you know rather than the other way around but I I think in a speech you're actually discovering what's what's hidden away and including the breaks and the the points of the stops and the starts and and sort of chapter headings if you like whatever that I, I don't think I had any more scientific approach to it than that. You're always, you know, you're looking for something to say, and I, and I, you know, to go go back to where I started. So much of political discourse is these days just stuff that you can feel the advisor over your shoulder saying, "Say that, mate. Say that. Mention, mention, um, mention jobs, mate. Mention access and equity. Mention equity. You know." Put that in. Where's our message, mate? And and you want to say, if you say that again, I'll knock your block off. Because a speech isn't like that. I suppose it's also what I mean about Paul having an ear for for poetry. That you you can't you can't make it out of a sow's ear. You, know, you have to. You can't make it out of slogans or messaging or any of that sort of stuff. That was the huge good fortune I had in writing for Paul that I had someone who didn't want the slogans didn't believe in messaging any of that stuff liked fresh language and had a real you know strong feel for the place and that that, that was a privilege beyond imagining and I and and I know that the people who wrote for subsequent leaders never had anybody like that you know it uh, I'm in no doubt about you know the gift that he was to um, to someone who liked to write because he was open to this and I do <laughs> do remember him walking along a passage one day with an advisor coming along behind him who later became a senior cabinet cabinet minister saying mention jobs mate mention wait for Hoggy's polling. Wait for Hoggy's polling. Mention jobs, mate. Jobs and security. And and Paul stopped and said to Mark Ryan or someone, will you tell him, if he says that again, I'll knock his block off? And then kept walking. <laughs> and that was really the difference. He, he, you know, he was old-fashioned in that sense. Do you, does it... 
does it sort of hurt you that the, the relationship isn't as close as a result of, of what went down? Um, oh, yeah, it's, pain, it's painful. It is painful. You've got to get on with it, but it, it's... Um, because I think it's all unnecessary, you know. It's... Um, you know, I meant no harm. I... Um, have nothing but admiration, even if I, you know, but I, I suppose I retain my right to, to, to be an historian, and and record it as I saw it and as it seems to me the fact indicate. And uh, that was the, that's where things came adrift with us, not on any intent of mine to magnify my role or, or um. Um, diminish his absolutely not and I know Redfern isn't at the heart of his grievance it's, it's, it's the whole book but um, there was a line in the in the 10 year edition where you said I, I can't get away from the fact that on one dark night I wrote it Is well that's really just saying the historical bit you know and, and, and that's where I, I I mean I was really cheesed off with him quoting Freudy against me because I rang Freudy the next day and he said if he thinks I said that he's misinterpreted what I said um, but that was a bit of a low blow but he felt very aggrieved and we throw low blows when we're aggrieved um, but it is you know that that's there's a bit of Australiana for it the um, it's the working with the <laughs> helicopter on the surveillance I'd say that's right he's especially been sent out that's the crux of the problem. The loyal servant of the man runs into the, the, the necessities of history. And I, 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 said, I think I said in that afterward, you know, that the, I wrote 60,000 words to begin with this book as if I wasn't there. And it was just phony it's totally phony I sounded like a policeman in a magistrate's court you know like it just had no connection to reality at all so I decided really through a strange process through a historian called Barry Smith saying to me look I'm not going to read I don't read these sorts of books that are written by advisors to prime ministers or them because I don't believe them but you kept a diary, why don't you just publish the diary? And I thought about that for several weeks. And um, I remember actually the day he said that, I had dinner with Mick, Mick Gordon and Jim Middleton and said, I think I might do the diary, just publish the diary. Then I thought, you know, looking at the diary, it, was, it would have needed so much kind of filling in that it wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have done the trick. But it gave me the idea that the best way to write this was as a sort of put myself in the picture you know. so it's my view up close this is what it was like so it's a much more subjective look and in a way the person who got it most right it most succinctly it was Bill Kelty who said you know Paul's problem with the book is that it's about you not him no that's not that's not literally true but it captures a lot of the problem and you know, it's it's not about me, but it is seen entirely through my lens rather than as if I was sort of God looking down on what's going on in the office. And it captures lots of the minutiae of life in a in a political situation, which is 
I think, valuable, you know. Because most of these books are written as if, you know, policy is handed down on high and the hero gets his way and and this is all about, you know, what matters. I wanted to actually give a, an insight into what a political office looks like from up close. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book. But Absolutely. It, but yeah. it leads to complications. The black box recorder. That the well, actually, that's the nicest thing he said about <laughs> That was just, oh, God, the launch of that book. So there's a speech. How did he – I've been thinking about this because I've I read in the afterward that he was scathing and oh, you know, he felt pinned against a wall almost. But he still agreed to do it. It was So what was this speech? Well, he had no choice but to do it. Well, he could have just said no. He could have just blackballed it. He, was, he showed a lot of courage to come and do it. But he came, you know, with a, a shillelagh, basically. Noel Pearson said it was a scalpel. Noel was standing next to me at the time. Noel had just spoken for about an hour and it felt like three hours. People were fainting. <laughs> There's a report that Bob Ellis hit Jared Henderson with a haymaker. I don't even you know, because it just went on so long. I said to Noel, if you're going to do it, don't feel you have to mention the book. Just come down and let him know that this is a black fella talking and he's going, and he's going to talk about what matters to him. And Noel took me at my word. I don't think he mentioned the book once, but he spoke for a very long time on a hot night in the town hall. It was packed with people. And then Paul spoke, and he, he just he just beat the bejesus out of me. I mean, I don't know whether how much of it. I can't remember a single thing he said except the black box. Oh, that's what he called. He said I was a fruit bat, and then always go back to the darkness. So, actually, they hang in trees, fruit bats. They don't go back to the darkness. They come out at night <laughs> and, um, and hang. Anyway. He got some good lines, but I think people were only semi-conscious by the time he spoke. Some people didn't even know that he was beating me up. I don't think. But anyway, it was a it was a an epic night, and I I, I rang him up a year later when I was in Sydney and said, "Do you want to have a drink?" And I just got both barrels. If it's possible to get both barrels over half an hour, I got both barrels until his battery went down, and we've never spoken since, apart from Mick's funeral. We said, we said hello. Well, that's Michael Gordon, the age, Geno, and you were both speakers, and that is an incredible funeral. I've put up five or six of the eulogies from that day. Paul's eulogy was just beautiful. Um, he hasn't given me permission to put that up, but I've put up some of the others. Hasn't he? I wonder why he didn't do that. I think he... I don't know, I think I'm his first uh, priority when I ring in with my <laughs> inquiries. I have actually asked him to talk about Redfern, I rang him up and asked him to talk about Redfern. Oh, did but, you? but he um he just said look uh, his assistant said that Paul would like the speeches to stand for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, well that's all right. That yeah. I'm I'm glad he said that. Because I think that's the best thing to do with them. You know, the speech is the speech and I don't oh well, it's up to him but I think the speech, you know I don't know where we stand now, but nothing's gonna change, that's for sure. The um, well, the speeches do stand for themselves, and it is a, um, an unbelievably beautiful piece of writing. Did you think it was your best speech? Sometimes there's that thing where, as you said, it was one that you hadn't thought would be a hit or anything like that. But no, I don't think it was the best speech. There were a lot of speeches, much harder speeches. You know that the Republic speech in the House was 
a really hard speech to write. It, it was gruelling because there was so much to try and get right about it and there was so much dissension about it from between the department and the office or between the department and Paul. But I think, I think that was a good speech. The biggest compliment paid to that speech was Paul said later that, I think it was he told me that Sinkers, old Ian Sinclair started heckling halfway through it, shouting out, and Sinkers apparently told Paul later, he, he said, I had to heckle, mate, it was going down too well. <laughs> so there's a character I don't mind from the other side, old Sinclair. I'd rather like him. Old-fashioned sort of, yeah. I heard him tell Barnaby to shut up once at a meeting in Wentworth over the Murray-Darling plan. I could have cheered. No, I think that was, you know, that was a big, gruelling speech. Hard to get right, and I think, by and large, we did. The ABC cut it off the moment he said the last word before the House rose in acclamation, which really pissed him off, and me too. <laughs> I can't remember many others, but, I, you know, they, they were sort of big big moments some were you know some were good speeches because they had to be um, you know you felt pleased with them because they were came under terrific duress and had to be winged at the last minute and they you got away with it they're all they all have different sort of provenance and written under different circumstances there was a speech that I I, I don't know what it looks like now but it was the Singapore speech which was really written with Alan Gingell I don't know why, that gave me a lot of satisfaction working with Alan on that. Some of the foreign policy speeches, I, I really enjoyed working with, with, particularly with Ginge. And um, that's when you felt, it's funny, that's when you felt like you were really doing this was sort of important sort of stuff. It was interesting. And working with these really very subtle minds like Alan Gingell's, trained in diplomacy in the DFAT school of... English and everything else <laughs> I enjoyed those and the, the, you know, the collaborative side of it was terrific when it when it worked I mean and I think I said that in the preface of the of the book that the real buzz was it was when you felt it was the sense of a collaborative enterprise when you know the economists and the and the the foreign policy people or whatever though as you're all actually working in some kind of way to solve a problem you know to think through to a position and with Paul in there as well. That was the, they were the great moments, you know, like winning a grand final sort of thing. And it was the same with the Republic speech. Jesus, we got there, you know, and it was good. They were much more rewarding moments than having knocked up a speech and you know, there were dozens and dozens of them. The other moment I think any speechwriter would actually say is satisfying is when you actually see the effect of words on an immediate audience and you realise that platitudes will never have this effect but if you can find something that actually touches people's lives the difference is chalk and cheese you know speaking of platitudes um, you know you can trot out on Anzac Day the same lines over and over again and people will go away saying well he spoke well didn't he yeah well that was right That that was fine or you can try and find some something. You can dig a bit deeper and try and find something familiar about the experience of an old digger or something. What it was actually like to fight in Milne Bay or to be locked up in on the Burma Thai Railroad or whatever. 
and that will hit a note that really resonates and you might even see a tear fly to, you know flow down a leathery cheek or something and it's not saying something it's only you know you might occasionally trigger something new but it's more like that you trigger a memory or you say something which touches a feeling that a common feeling you know that's the that's what every speechwriter should aim at and it's what speeches should do is push a boundary you know push a new thought but the, you know it should uh, go to the essence of the political relationship and in some genuine way so that you you owe it to the audience to say something which means something to them and to put it into words that they will respond to but you know the, the terrible tendency of politics particularly modern politics is not to do that is to do the very you know half the time the the public the public speech is is there to fill gaps is to disguise anything that might be said i mean the speeches are given where the where the intent is to say nothing because the story of the day's got to be something else you know that's that's an anathema <laughs> and and speechwriters will, you know, forever sit on the outside and more and more on the outside of the political process because that's not their instinct. And that's become, I mean, some of your subsequent books have talked not only about the the lack of, I guess, vision or a clear thing to say, but the way that the words then wrap it up as well, that you say you use words in such a way as to say nothing as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it becomes a habit and they don't know, you know... I think it's interesting in the course of this pandemic, I've had a, you know, in the lockdown here that I have a feeling, I have a horrible sense of people who speak this non-language going out and telling people in suburbs where they don't even speak English as a first language, in the words familiar to the public service, what they ought to be doing. And I think, how could they possibly understand or even be encouraged to listen if you're not actually using direct speech? There's a bit of talk now that the recent outbreak in the northern suburbs might have had something to do with poor communication. It wouldn't surprise anyone, would it, really? What Paul did say in a, in a speech called Redfern Reprise in 2015 is that what Redfern aimed at and achieved was truth, that that was something that had been lacking in the way that the relationship had been articulated and that that speech did that yeah. you know i think it's well that's right i mean and i guess that's that's it's funny i mean the, what was in redfern was the sort of stuff which australian revisionist historians of which i was sort of you know a part-time member had been saying for a long while that the facts add up to a, a, a calamity and and great cruelty and a record which is nothing short of appalling but what was being, you know, but that hadn't been said in a political context. And that's really what the speech amounts to, nothing more than that. And I, I, look, the only line I remember from that speech that, that felt like it was, it, it was the sort of motif was, it was the line about, we never asked, we never asked the question, what if this had, what if this had been done to us? Which is, you know, really on the nose. It's sort of on the nose, the imp- on the nose empathy <laughs> yeah. saying well you know you could apply the same principle to a whole lot of things including genocides but little things like telling one son not to do this to another son you know it's very basic it's basically truthful then there's the imagines i think you talk about repetition there's seven or eight 
repeated imagine if this had happened imagine if this had happened imagine and that's you know again core empathy stuff yeah and it, i mean uh, but i mean i think this uh, you know as a speechwriter i'd say well you know that it's also it's following that basic principle that you have to speak to your audience even if you're trying to make a point to someone else and that resonated with that immediate audience and i suppose that's why it resonated beyond that but i still think the crucial thing that i don't think other politicians would have taken on and i'm not sure that i would have resisted if another politician had said don't do it is using the word we because that's where you know the anti-guilt industry got onto the speech and started you know and bashed it from the first moment we didn't do it why should we wear the guilt to which you know the obvious answer is well at the very same time you're running around saying the japanese should take responsibility for war crimes or uh, so should or to go back to your judeo-christian principles you know the sins of the fathers will be visited on the children so and even while the speech was being written there was an anticipation of that argument because there's a paragraph on it you know guilt is not a very constructive emotion so you're basically anticipating what's Mm. coming yeah absolutely the guilt industry as it was called you know the black armband history and all that sort of stuff i find it really quite astonishing you know the most astonishing thing about mabo that was said was on the day the legislation was passed john hewson who's turned out to be a socialist said it it's um it's a day of shame i mean whatever else it was how it could be called a day of shame, I'll never understand. And it just sort of leaves you thinking, there is this vast gulf. It's like two different classes of humanity. Even if you thought it was bad politics or, you know, it was going to wreck the economy. I mean, a day of shame. Shame just seems like the wrong word to me. That's just, and, and the pain that that exacts as well. I mean, we've had an episode with Stan Grant where he talks about terra nullius and what those words, how they ring in the ear of what... Mm. you know land belonging to no one mm. i mean that it, it's just such a slap and mm. yeah the, the idea that that could be uh, rectified in a very small and unintimidating way mm. um, and be called a day of shame is just incredible and yet you know when mabo was passed we then learned you know that there were farmers all over the riverina and northern victoria who were cutting down old canoe trees and shield trees and burying middens and getting rid of any sign that they might have been this might have been aboriginal land once and so the reactions were it, it put the fear of god into a lot of people the mabo thing it, people in the scrub at least and then of course you know it got hyped up into they'll take your backyard and well, you know it did sort of unleash a beast of terror you know and people react once they feel threatened, you know, then then all reason goes out the door. Well, it's interesting. There's an interview that Keating did on 2UE, I think. Um, it's really interesting. It's on YouTube. I've put it up on Speak Isla with a transcript as well of just a discussion between him and the fearful public. It's, mm. it's, it's amazing. That's when he said, you know, this person says, I'm not a racist, but, and he says, they all say that, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> it's bloody brilliant. They all say that. They say, I'm not a racist, but... <laughs> Well, we're going to play the Redfern Park speech in its entirety in a moment. But, uh, Don, uh, I really appreciate the time that you've given to me this afternoon. And I, it actually saddens me that the relationship with uh, Prime Minister is as it is. But um, thank you so much for 
talking about the speech. Good, Tony. All the best. This is the 11th episode of the podcast and sixth year of the Speakola website project and it is largely a labour of love. I do get a small contribution from the wonderful people at Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados but the website brings in no revenues and I don't cover my costs for hosting the website and hosting the podcast. If you ever feel like helping the Speakola and Wilson family bottom line, you can buy my books at tonywilson.com.au and I am also considering a Patreon or Memberly option to be launched shortly. The book of mine I'm going to talk about this week is Harry High Pants. It's a book about freedom. It's a book about pants. Everyone in town wears their pants at different height, but Roy Bland emerges with a suspiciously fascist-looking moustache saying that pants have to be worn at normal height. And it takes a people's movement begun by the kids but supported by the eccentric Harry High Pants for freedom to prevail. I've had a lot of nice feedback on this one. It's a book about civics and protest and having your voice heard. And you can buy it from me, tonywilson.com.au. Send me an email and it's 15 bucks for the paperback. Love to send you a copy. Now it's time for the speech of the week, and it is, of course, the Redfern Address. Delivered 10th of December 1992, six months after the High Court handed down its Mabo decision. We've spoken about it at length. All that's left is to hear it in its entirety. So let's press play on a moment in Australian history. The Mayor of South Sydney, Vic Smith, my ministerial colleague, Robert Tickner, the Leader of the Opposition and his Deputy, Bob Carr and Andrew F. Shorge, distinguished members of Parliament, guests, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I'm very pleased to be here today at the launch of Australia's celebration of the 1993 International Year of the World's Indigenous People. It will be a year of great significance for Australia. It comes at a time when we've committed ourselves to succeeding in the test which so far we've always failed. Because in truth, we cannot confidently say that we've succeeded if we've not managed to expect to extend opportunity and care, dignity and hope to the indigenous people of Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This is a fundamental test of our social goals and our national will. Our ability to say to ourselves and to the rest of the world that Australia is a first-rate social democracy, that we are what we should be, truly the land of a fair go and the better chance. There is no more basic test, I think, of how seriously we mean these things. It's in test of our self-knowledge, of how well we know the land we live in, how well we know our history, how well we recognise the fact that, complex as our contemporary identity is, it cannot be separated from Aboriginal Australia. How well we know what Aboriginal Australians 
know about Australia. Redfin is a good place to contemplate these things, as Sol said a few moments ago. Just a mile or two from this place, where the first European settlers landed, in too many ways it tells us that the failure to bring much more than devastation and demoralisation to Aboriginal Australia continues to be our failure. More, I think, than most Australians recognise. The plight of Aboriginal Australians affects us all. In Redford, it might be tempting to think that the reality Aboriginal Australians face is somehow contained here and that the rest of us are insulated from it. But of course, while all the dilemmas may exist here, as we all know, they're far from contained. We know the same dilemmas and more are faced all over Australia. That is perhaps the point of this year of the world's Indigenous people, to bring the dispossessed out of the shadows, to recognise that they are part of us, that we cannot give Indigenous Australians up without giving up many of our own deeply held values, much of our identity and indeed our own humanity. Nowhere in the world, I would venture, is the message more stark than Australia. We cannot simply sweep injustice aside. Even if our own conscience allowed us to, I'm sure that in due course, the world and the people of our region would not. There should be no mistake about this. Our success in resolving these issues will have a significant bearing on our standing in the world. And Sol mentioned this morning that Lois O'Donoghue will be speaking in a historic speech to the United Nations making this very point. But however intractable, intractable the problems seem, we can't resign ourselves to failure any more than we can hide behind our opponents, our political opponents' contemporary version of social Darwinism, which says that to reach back for the poor and dispossessed is to risk being dragged down. It seems to me not only morally indefensible, but bad history. We non-Aboriginal Australians should perhaps remind ourselves that Australia once reached out for us. Didn't Australia provide opportunity and care for the dispossessed Irish? Did it not for the poor of Britain, the refugees from war and famine, and persecution in the countries of Europe and Asia? If it isn't reasonable to say that if we can build a prosperous and remarkable harmonious multicultural society in Australia, surely we can find just solutions to the problems which beset the first Australians, the people to whom the most injustice has been done. And as I say, the starting point might be to recognise that the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal Australians. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. 
recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance, ignorance and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exceptions, we fail to make the most basic human response and enter into their hearts and minds. We fail to ask, how would I feel if this was done to me? As a consequence, we fail to see that what we were doing degraded us all. If we need a reminder of this, we received it in this year with the report of the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which showed with devastating clarity that the past lives on in inequality, racism and injustice, in the prejudice and ignorance of non-Aboriginal Australians and in the demoralisation and desperation the fractured identity of so many Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. For all this, I do not believe that the report should fill us with guilt. Down the years, there's been no shortage of guilt, but it has not produced the response we need. Guilt, I think we've all learned, is not a very constructive emotion. I think what we need to do is to open our hearts a bit, all of us. Perhaps when we recognise what we have in common, we will see the things which must be done, the practical things. There's something of this in the creation of the Council for Aboriginal Reconstruction. The Council's mission is to forge a new partnership built on justice and equity and an appreciation of the heritage of Australia's Indigenous people. In the abstract, those terms are meaningless. We have to give meaning to justice and equity, and as I've said several times this year, we will only give them meaning when we commit ourselves to achieving concrete results. If we improve the living conditions in one town, they will improve in another and another. If we raise the standard of health by 20% one year, it'll be raised more the next. If we open one door, others will follow. When we see improvement, we will see more dignity, more confidence, more happiness. We will know we're going to win. We will need these practical building blocks of change. As Sol said, the Mabo judgment should be seen as one of these. By doing away with a bizarre concept that this continent had no owners prior to the settlement of Europeans, Mabo establishes a fundamental truth and lays the basis for justice. It'll be much easier to work from that basis than it's ever been from any case in the past. For that reason alone, we should ignore the isolated, the isolated outbreaks of hysteria and hostility to Mabo, which we've heard in the past few months. 
Mabo is an historic decision. We can make it an historic turning point, the basis of a new relationship between Indigenous and non-Aboriginal Australians. The message should be that there's nothing to fear or to lose in the recognition of historical truth or the extension of social justice or the deepening of Australian social democracy to include Indigenous Australians. In fact, as all of us I think here know, there's everything to gain. Even the unhappy past speaks for this. Where Aboriginal Australians have been included in the life of Australia, they have made remarkable contributions. Economic contributions, particularly in the pastoral and agricultural industry. They are there in the frontier and exploration history of Australia. They were there in the wars, in sport to an extraordinary degree, in literature and art and in music. In all these things, they've shaped our knowledge of this continent and of ourselves. They've shaped our identity. They are there in the Australian legend. And we should never forget, they've helped us build this nation. And if we have a sense of justice, as well as common sense, we will forge a new partnership. As I said, it might help if we non-Aboriginal Australians imagined ourselves dispossessed of land we had lived on for 50,000 years and then imagined ourselves told that it had never been ours. Imagine if ours was the oldest culture in the world and we were told that it was worthless. Imagine if we had resisted this settlement, suffered and died in the defence of our land and then were told in history books that we'd given up without a fight. Imagine if non-Aboriginal Australians had served their country in peace and war and were then ignored in history books. Imagine if our feats on the sporting fields had inspired admiration and patriotism and yet did nothing to diminish prejudice. Imagine if our spiritual life was denied and ridiculed. Imagine if we had suffered the injustice and then were blamed for it. It seems to me, if we can imagine the injustice, we can imagine the opposite. And we can have justice. I say we can have justice for two reasons. I say it because I believe that the great things about Australian social democracy reflect a fundamental belief in justice. And I say it because in so many other areas, we have proved our capacity over the years to go on extending the realms of participation, opportunity and care. Just as Australians living in the relatively narrow and insular Australia of the 1960s imagined a culturally diverse, worldly and open Australia, and in a generation turned this into a reality, so we can turn the goals of reconciliation into a reality. There are very good signs that the process has begun. The creation of the Reconciliation Council is evidence of this. The establishment of ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, is also evidence. The Council indeed is the product of imagination and goodwill. ATSIC emerges from the vision of Indigenous self-determination 
and self-management. The vision's already become the reality of almost 800 elected Aboriginal regional councillors and commissioners determining priorities and developing their own programs. All over Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are taking charge of their own lives and assistance with the problems which chronically beset them is at last being made available in ways developed by the communities themselves. If these things offer hope, so does the fact that this generation of Australians is better informed about Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal achievement and about the injustice that has been done and that, in, that than any generation before it has so been aware. So we are beginning to more generally appreciate the depth and the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. From their music and art and dance, we're beginning to recognise how much richer our national life and identity will be for the participation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We're beginning to learn that the Indigenous people have known for many thousands of years how to live with our physical environment. Ever so gradually, we're learning to see Australia through Aboriginal eyes, beginning to recognise the wisdom contained in their epic story. I think we're beginning to see how much we owe the Indigenous Australians and how much we've lost by living so apart. I said we non-Indigenous Australians should try to imagine the Aboriginal view. It can't be too hard. Someone imagined this event today and it's now a reality and a great reason for hope. But there's one thing today we cannot imagine. We cannot imagine that the descendants of people whose genius and resilience maintained a culture here through 50,000 years or more through cataclysmic changes to the climate and the environment and who then survived two centuries of dispossession and abuse will be denied their place in the modern Australian nations. We can't imagine that. We cannot imagine that we'll fail. And with the spirit that is here today, I'm confident that we won't fail. I'm confident we will succeed in this decade. Thank you very much for listening to me. Well, that's it for the episode and a really special one for me. Paul Keating, such a hero of mine as I came into my adult years. And Don Watson, as good an author as we have of nonfiction here in Australia. So what a thrill to be able to spend all that time with him. Thank you for the batteries. Thank you for the succulents. And thank you for the next episode of the Speak Older podcast, which is on Paul Keating's Unknown Soldier speech. Thank you to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. You can tap your love for avocados at greenskinavocados.com.au. Thank you to everyone who's left reviews on iTunes. That's a free and easy way to help the podcast along. Thanks to everyone who sends me speeches and words of encouragement. In Melbourne, we're out and we're free. Bring on the summer. See you next time.